This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier Zmemle. And I'm Yannick Mringian. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? Desktop Linux 10 years later. Ooh, but before we start, I think you do have some follow-up. Yeah, so first I want to remind everyone that we are doing a Zelda Link to the Past episode in six episodes on April 25th. So this is your advanced warning uh, so you can play along with us. Uh, next up, I have some follow-up for episode 150, which was about Stadia. Uh, something pretty cool happened this last two weeks, which is that uh, Hitman 3 came out on Stadia. And that means that one of the Stadia features that we said was kind of missing in action uh, decided to show up. Uh, so one of the features that they had announced at the original Stadia event was something called State Share. And what it meant was that you could effectively uh, put your character or whatever in a given situation, save a state of that and share it with your friends. Uh, and this is great for Hitman because Hitman is effectively a game where you just can roam this big map and as long as you assassinate the target, however you do it, uh, as long as you don't get caught, that's pretty much how you beat the level. And now you can put uh, Agent 47 in a really strange or dangerous position and then challenge your friends to get out of it. Uh, so this is targeting YouTube mm. streamers. Uh, you can just like from within the game, press a button and immediately the people who are watching your stream get a link to jump right into where you are in the game and try to recreate the same situation. So it's a cool feature. Uh, it's nice to see that it's finally coming out uh, and I haven't actually seen anyone use it, uh, but it would be interesting <laughs> to see uh, if anyone knows of any examples, please get in touch and uh, we'll mention it in a future episode. It does sound cool. So yes, if you have examples, please send us our, please send them our way. Uh, next up is just a little uh, follow up on PS5 and uh, supply issues, specifically supply and scalper issues in Japan. So if you are not, uh, in the market for uh, PS5 right now, uh, you may not be aware that there are scalpers running all over the place uh, worldwide, uh, st sometimes even stealing delivery trucks and running away with the PS5s that are in them. Uh, luckily, the delivery truck theft issue is not a problem in Japan, uh, but the scalper issue is quite significant in Japan. And also the other problem is uh, Japan has gotten very, very low allocations of units. Uh, this is a trend that I've sort of noticed ever since PS4 Pro and PSVR where, uh, especially for launch period, Japan just gets basically no units. And it means that there's this huge shortage and that incentivizes scalpers to get out and do their business. And this is now actually biting Sony in the ass because uh, sales numbers for PS5 are out. Uh, unfortunately, the sales chart I am looking at right now is not very clear as to whether these are weekly numbers or monthly numbers. But let's just go through the unit numbers in general and you'll get a sense for it uh so again this is either the entire month of december or the week of december 28th to january 3rd it's really not clear which of these two it is i'm sorry um so 31 ps4 pro sold 36 xbox series s sold 98 xbox series x sold 748 new t 2ds xls sold 2DS Excel? Yeah, they're wow. discontinued, but they still have stock. Um, wow. 3,026 PS5 digital editions sold. 7,606 PS5 sold. 17,845 PS4 sold. <laughs> what? 67,436 Nintendo Switch Lite sold. 
and of course, 244,685 Nintendo Switches sold. So the the thing to note is that like if you look at this chart, there are two big red bars, and then there's the pile at the bottom. Uh, so Nintendo is pretty much running away with the console business right now. And the other issue is they sold more PS4s than PS5s, which is really not good. Um, so that's not great. And unfortunately, this has bled into Japanese publishers, which are looking at the sales numbers and they're saying, well, not only are these sales numbers low, but they're effectively selling out of 100% of the units that are allocated to the Japanese market. So it's not clear what percentage of those are actual demand and what are just scalpers buying everything. And that's what's worrying Japanese game developers. And there have been rumors the Japanese developers are considering either dropping PS5 entirely, which is insane when you think about it, or just completely rethinking their approach to the market. Uh, and uh, I also mentioned the Xbox numbers. Xbox doesn't really matter. <laughs> like, you sold 136 units of your console, like, a month after launch. That's terrible. <laughs> um so, yeah, it's really interesting to see those numbers. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen going forward. I would be very sad if PS5 just gets significantly less Japanese games because they just decide to focus everything on Switch. But that might be the world we're living in. Uh, so things to look forward to are not uh, in the future. Uh, but that's pretty much a, a bird's eye view of what's happening right now with uh, console sales in Japan. And that's it for my follow-up. All right, so the main topic. Woohoo! Uh, so I last used Linux as a daily driver operating system back in 2011. Uh, it was while we were in college, and uh, I was on a Dell Mini 9 netbook that was running Arch Linux. Uh, if you're not familiar, Arch Linux is a minimalist Linux distro that targets expert users. And at the time, it had a really good wiki and a fantastic community, which actually made it a really, really good way to learn about how Linux works. Uh, it was much like building your own PC. You felt like you were building your operating system from the ground up, except unlike, let's say, if you use Gentoo or whatever, uh, you don't have to compile everything, which is a pain in the ass. Uh, so you get to have all of the fun of building your OS from the ground up, but none of the shitty work. Uh, <laughs> and I primarily use that netbook to attend college lectures and work on software assignments for our various uh, programming classes. Yeah, and our time during college was the prime time for netbooks, too. It was, yeah. Um, and that, that's sort of funny because it was around the same period that the big Ubuntu boom was happening. Uh, it was mm. the new hotness. Uh, it really hit a sweet spot for, uh, I was going to say consumers, but not really consumers. Uh, it, it hit a sweet spot for out-of-the-box hardware compatibility and ease of installation. Like, that's what I meant. Um, and... There are these things called respin distros, which are basically uh, people say... I'm going to make a new Linux distribution when in reality all they do is they take an off-the-shelf distribution that's bigger than them and they just rechange what the standard configuration of packages is. Uh, for example, uh, Ubuntu had Kubuntu, which was a KDE variant of Ubuntu. Well, that's an official respin, and there are many different respin distributions like that. Well, a lot of Debian respins were suddenly thinking, hmm, maybe we should respin off of Ubuntu because there are so many advantages to going and leeching off of Ubuntu's work. Yeah, it seems that... I recalled most of the like respin distro to be Ubuntu based. Yeah, Ubuntu was basically like the big thing in Linux at the time, and it's less so now uh, due to a couple of uh, missteps that there have been along the way. Um, but that's not important to the context of this episode. Um, 
what's interesting about the time when I left Linux was that this was right around the time that a significant and controversial software overhaul initiative was going to take place. And that's what this entire episode is about. So let's talk about what caused this first, which is the launch of the iPhone, surprisingly. Uh, the launch of the iPhone in 2007 really startled the Linux community. And the reason for that is desktop Linux devs were embarrassed. They really weren't happy that this smartphone with crappy specs relative to PCs at the time, desktop PCs at the time, was consistently pumping out a more polished and smoother UI than any Linux box could <laughs> at any price at the time. <laughs> There's a pretty good presentation by one of the developers of Wayland, which we'll be talking about a little bit later, basically saying like it, it, his embarrassment for having worked on like uh, the X window system for this many years or whatever, and that like this phone comes out and makes everything look like a joke because there's stutter and freezing and everything in every Linux UI at the time. Um, on top of that, the usability gap between your average desktop Linux distribution and closed source operating systems like the Mac and Windows was just growing over time. So this big uh, crisis about the iPhone really led to this one question being asked, which is how do we take the fragmented Linux ecosystem and turn it into a nicely integrated, cohesive system that is com competitive with modern operating systems? There is an organization in the world of Linux that exists especially for this, uh, to improve the Linux, uh, the desktop Linux experience, and they are known as freedesktop.org. Uh, previously, they were known as the Cross Desktop Group, or XDG, so if I slip and call them that, uh, you, you know what I'm talking about. Their software projects usually boil down to three different types of things. Uh, they work on core components. Uh, generally, this means service initialization, hardware detection, libraries, all of that stuff. Uh, they work on plumbing, which is more or less to offer support APIs to lower level OS components like package managers, security policies, and more. And then there's the GUI base layer. Uh, so they are responsible for making the lowest level graphics APIs for window managers, desktop environments, and widget toolkits to build on top of. So that's what freedesktop.org is responsible for. Uh, but freedesktop.org is composed of developers from all over the world of Linux. Um, but one organization really stands out in the composition of freedesktop.org. And they're going to come up a lot this episode. And that's Red Hat. Uh, Red huh. Hat is the single biggest contributor to freedesktop.org projects and a lot of related but not technically freedesktop.org projects. Are they going to come a lot to today in the episode? Because they, again, last time I looked at Red Hat, they were like, and say, you know what? Our, we're using li like Linux distros, but we're like more or less sending you like support packages. So we are here to help. And that's where we make our money. It, it's funny because I'm not sure this is about money, but you'll see as the episode goes on. Okay. So. Uh, Red Hat controls, if you're not familiar with it, Red Hat was one of the big uh, 90s internet boom companies that really flourished off of uh, Linux. They were selling enterprise Linux to enterprises. Uh, so that's their main product, which is Red Hat Enterprise Linux or RHEL if, is how people say it for short. So if I say RHEL, you know what I'm talking about. Most successful enterprise workstation Linux distro, this, this cash cow of the company. Uh, and yeah, they, they sell support packages for that because technically all of the sources available for free online, you can build it yourself. Uh, CentOS technically belongs to Red Hat since a couple years ago. Uh, unfortunately, they also 
recently killed what CentOS was <laughs> a few months ago. Um, oh, no. But, uh, until recently, super successful Linux distribution for servers, especially for like cheap web hosting. Uh, you see a lot of CentOS around there. And then uh, their main consumer or developer-facing uh, distribution is Fedora. It's an incredibly good distribution for developer workstations, and it's really at a sweet spot of stability and keeping up to date with the latest shit. Uh, It's really good. So I did mention that Red Hat is the single biggest contributor to FDO projects and also related projects that are not technically free desktop.org projects. One of those is also the GNOME project. Uh, It is the default desktop environment for all of Red Hat's distributions. This is also going to be important to this episode. (laughs) Uh, so like the, the thing I'm sort of alluding to here is that Red Hat is kind of in this funny position where they control enough of the desktop Linux stack that if they decide that they want to push some kind of agenda, they can do it because they control every layer of the stack. And it's with that, that we're going to be beginning the story of Linux on the desktop over the last decade. Oh, because I guess they abused their power a bit or they, they did one of those push you're referring to. It will become abundantly clear very soon. So let's start with the first of these uh, software improvement initiatives, which is System D. So first, uh, for less technical people, let's explain a little bit what this is. So when any operating system boots up, the first thing it does, it loads the kernel. And the kernel implements the most core functionality to the operating system, which fundamentally comes down to two things. How do I write to a disk and how do I talk to devices? Once the kernel is loaded, you have just enough functionality that you can launch a process. But which process? Well, you usually launch a base process that finishes loading the rest of the operating system's components that exist outside the kernel. Uh, And in Unix system, uh, traditionally we call this the init process or the init system. And system D at its core, when, when it was originally being planned, it was just supposed to be a new modern init system. Uh, so the way init systems generally work is that traditionally they go through an ordered list of system services and they start them all sec- sequentially. Uh, system D is a little bit more advanced than that. It uses dependency trees and it pushes for both parallel and concurrent execution of these new uh, services as soon as the dependencies are met. So this means if you have a very like a multi-core or multi-threaded processor, uh, you can start multiple uh, services up at once instead of waiting for them to have their dependencies filled sequentially. Uh, This in itself is not particularly novel. There were other uh, init systems at the time that were doing very similar things uh, around that era. And to some extent, the init system, which was originally supposed to be the point of system D, sort of became the least important point of system D (laughs) because it became a monster and it would devour absolutely anything that was in its path. And System D became a massive suite of software instead. Anything tangentially related to the init process was being thrown into the System D suite. Um, it's only a slight exaggeration to say that everything that happens between pressing the power button and seeing a login screen, a graphical login screen to be clear, has been replaced with a component of System D somewhere. Wow, that does sound like a lot of scope creep. It's incredible scope creep, and people were incredibly pissed about this. <laughs> wow. Um, and in fact, to what degree it was scope creep, some things were stripped out of the Linux fucking kernel to be put into the <laughs> system D. Uh, this is generally a good idea for security, by the way. It's not a 
technically a bad idea, but it also means that a core kernel feature is now part of a software package that traditionally in its systems, first of all, they're expected to be small basic things and second of all they're, they're meant to be swappable you can change the init system on the operating system usually so this is like technically an optional package and now you just put a core system feature in what was assumed to be an optional package so people weren't really great about this um and if you look at what generally distinguishes at a technical level linux distributions from one another the two main things that distinguish linux distros from one another are init systems and package managers. So this isn't normal. <laughs> like you're not supposed to have this in a system that is absolutely fucking massive that does everything and maybe sort of is being forced down everyone's throat. But if you were making software that was related to the init process, whether it be a daemon that sets the date and time, which is something very simple, uh, networking software, uh, certain parts of the audio stack, all of this stuff was just being replaced with components of system D. And if you weren't becoming a part of it, you were becoming obsolete. So this happened over the last decade. The foundation layer of how Linux systems boot from power on to desktop got completely replaced. We went from having hundreds of different configurations of this init system and this, uh, this, time and date daemon and this network daemon and this other unrelated software, all of this was being consolidated into one stack developed by one group of people, largely coming from Red Hat. There are a couple stubborn distributions which refuse to switch from system D to system D. Uh, we'll get to them later in the episode. Uh, I was not present for this. I only heard horror stories through the grapevines. Um, but it sounds like it was a rocky migration, both in terms of community reaction, obviously, because a lot of people were software developers and they were frightened at what they were seeing, and software stability. Um, but nowadays, we've sort of made it through all of that rocky migration, and it seems to have mostly ironed out. And of course, like it's a carefully architected stack of software. It's a massively huge stack of software, but it was carefully architected at the very least. Uh, and there were benefits to this over the old system of unrelated disparate modules by 27 billion different authors. Uh, things are simpler if you can assume the presence of a common core software stack. You have a more predictable behavior than a fully modular approach. And this is another thing that's pretty important. More consistency across distributions means simpler, more widely applicable documentation and software distribution. Previously, let's say you built a web server or whatever, and you wanted to send it out to all Linux users. Well, each distribution had a different init system. So you would have to basically make your web server and then give instructions that were generally applicable on this is how you start the web server. And then each distribution that would put it in their package manager would make their init script for that web server so that when you install it, it would start correctly when you boot the machine. That sucks. If everyone uses systemd, you can distribute one executable to all of the Linux distributions and automatically systemd will just start it because you have one script that works everywhere. Uh, so, so that's not a small benefit. It's a big deal. Right, and that makes all of those Linux distros work a bit like, I'd say Windows or Mac, but like, if you work on Windows, there's one way to start programs at boot at, at boot time, or even on the Mac, and you work it, and it works on that platform. Yeah, 
it's just simpler because you can just assume aside from the few Linux distros that I mentioned earlier that are not jumping on the system D bandwagon, you can download the thing and pretty sure you know how to install it because everyone's using the same init system now. So step one of the plan, Red Hat woke up one morning and decided everyone is going to use our init system and we're going to shove it down everyone's throat. So what happens next? GNOME starts integrating more and more with system D. Um, so system D integration on GNOME started out being relatively minor. Uh, there used to be the, well, I, it technically still exists. We'll talk about it in a little bit. Uh, there's a thing called package kit, which is technically part of system D for some fucking reason. Uh, package kit is a shim library that can talk to basically any package manager in an indiscriminate way. So GNOME could effectively ask the package manager, is GNOME up to date? Or are there any software updates? Like that's the level of functionality. And again, I have no idea why this is technically part of system D, but it's part of system D. So unfortunately there was a dependency there. Uh, part of the power management stack is in system D because that's also kind of maybe sort of related to init. Uh, so smarter power management in GNOME got enabled, but it required system D. Uh, you know what else happens right after you boot your system? You need to log in. Login D is a part of system D and now GNOME wants to integrate with login D. So those were the three main things early on in GNOME that integrated with system D. However, like the philosophy appears to have changed over time. So right now GNOME's philosophy to system D dependencies appears to be this. You can continue to build GNOME with what is called basic functionality in air quotes without system E as a build flag. So if you download GNOME uh, source code on the website and use uh, dash D, no system D or whatever, uh, dash D system D equals false, I think, uh, you can build GNOME fine without system D and it'll work. But you'll only basically have the features that existed like in 2012. <laughs> what? Oh, wow. <laughs> So since 2012, much of GNOME's new features are dependence on things that are only provided by systemd at the moment or can be provided by alternatives to systemd, but it makes assumptions about how that underlying layer will behave that are only true in how systemd does things and will never be true about other alternatives, which really sucks. Uh, even if alternatives to systemd had the resources to improve compatibility for GNOME's new features, which, spoilers, they don't, uh, sometimes it simply isn't possible to integrate with GNOME because of these assumptions. Uh, an example of this, uh, which will come up later, is, once again, Gentoo does not support systemd, and uh, they have their own init system, which is called OpenRC. Uh, they tried to integrate with uh, the GNOME session management for uh, multi-user sessions, and they could not get it to work until they imported the source code from uh, systemd and started basically isolating the code of logindy so that it will work. So on top of that, there's not much documentation on the GNOME side of things, where if a new feature is implemented with systemd, it's really not clear without reading the entire source code what a systemd alternative would have to provide as an interface to be able to support those features either. Uh, so not having any kind of technical documentation or specs for that makes it really shitty for people who are outside that world to integrate with GNOME. It's kind of uh, symbiotic in that 
GNOME feeds systemd feature requests to add features to GNOME, and systemd features result in GNOME feature requests for adding features to GNOME. So they're not directly related, but they are. They happen to be quite coupled. And for the moment, no other desktop environment is as tightly integrated with systemd as GNOME. If you're using Linux on the desktop, you don't have to use GNOME, but you're not really getting a first-class designed desktop experience if you aren't using GNOME. So it's not technically being forced down your throat, but you kind of feel like if you want to experience the best of Linux, you have to use GNOME, and that kind of sucks. And it does mean that you need to use distro that uses systemd at its core too. Yes, that, well, that's sort of the root issue here, but it, it, it goes further. <laughs> Uh-oh. If you can believe it. Well, yeah, I'm not sure I can believe that. Okay, so let's talk about Flatpak. Oh my goodness, those names. Flatpak is meant to address a problem that happened around the Ubuntu boom, uh, which is the LTS problem. So not everyone wants to be on a software treadmill. Uh, Ubuntu and Fedora, for example, they ship new versions every six months. And uh, by default, Ubuntu distributions are supported from nine months. And Fedora distributions are supported for 13 months. So these support windows are actually even smaller than closed source operating systems like Windows or the Mac. Uh, well, especially Windows, because technically Windows versions are not even really a thing anymore. And in some environments like the enterprise or whatever, uh, it's problematic to have that aggressive of an upgrade schedule. Like you don't even need to be an enterprise. You can just be like a small business and not necessarily want to update your system every 13 months to stay up to date. Uh, so you need something that's stable and secure and can stay relevant for multiple years. And that's when Ubuntu came around and popularized LTS or long-term support, which is every two years, there's a version of Ubuntu that's released that will receive security updates for five years for free or 10 years if you pay them, uh, which is sort of the business model for how Canonical uh, supports Ubuntu. Now, the problem for that is that the rest of the software world continues to march forward without you. And getting software, especially closed source projects from big tech companies, can be tricky if you're using an outdated distribution. So the whole problem that Flatpak was supposed to solve was how do we allow these companies to make one software package that runs on every distribution, regardless of how outdated the underlying dependencies may be. And on top of that, there was another concern, which is direct distribution. Uh, generally on Linux, like the, the software distribution story is that each distribution has their own package manager. And the distribution controls that. Uh, so when you have a new release, you can generally you submit it to your own source repository as the open source uh, software vendor or whatever. And then the distribution, if they have you in their package repos, will notice that update and they will try to get a version of it up to date for the next release of their OS. Or if they're a rolling release uh, like Arch Linux or whatever, uh, they'll update it when they get to it basically um <laughs> and uh the bigger distributions like ubuntu and fedora they have different quality assurance measures for their package management repositories and all of that stuff and what that means is that software with rapid iteration cycles from companies that are used to directly distributing to consumers find linux hard to deal with because it means that the time that it takes to get a new release out to customers varies wildly depending on what distribution people are using uh so for example spotify uh, I'm pretty sure they don't want to be waiting on all of these different distributions to have their package updated. Uh, Steam is very similar to that. Uh, and stuff like, let's say, 
Chromium or Visual Studio Code, where they ha- basically have in-process updaters because they are releasing often every day, if not multiple times a week, uh, that would never fly in this kind of structure. Uh, and back in my day, uh, the way companies dealt with this is, uh, let's say Steam, for example, this is how they did it. They made an apt repository for Ubuntu, and that's it. So if you were not running Ubuntu, too bad. Uh, you just weren't supported, and you had to use Ubuntu and install this apt repository, and that was the only supported scenario. Um, obviously, people didn't really like that. Uh, so numerous solutions came out to deal with this, and there are basically three that really took off. There's Flatback from the GNOME and the Red Hat team. There's AppImage, which is, I think, completely independent, and Snaps from the Canonical slash Ubuntu team. Uh, I do want to mention very quickly that Snaps has a uh, for-profit portion of it. I don't really understand how it works. <laughs> I That's... just know that you can pay them money and I think it accelerates how quickly uh I I don't even understand, but th- you can pay them money. That's yeah. the important part. It's like a tip, you know, you pay them money and then they make things. What? You don't really know, but you just made things. So obviously uh within the story I'm trying to tell Flatpak is the only one that's relevant, so we're going to focus on Flatpak. Um So Flatpak actually tries to solve this software distribution problem in a simple way. So there's one app distribution format across all distributions, although this has an asterisk because the format has changed over time and now it's not really even easy to distribute and you're sort of making your own repository kind of like the other, but (laughs) details, details. Uh, (laughs) And the way they do it is they have preset runtime environments that handle all common dependencies. So there are three presets. There's a freedesktop.org preset, which is just... I am writing a desktop Linux app indiscriminate of any uh, desktop environment. And then there are GNOME and KDE presets if you're writing specifically for GNOME or KDE. Uh, And you bundle your dependencies along your application to ensure compatibility. So how does it do this? It uses user space containers, um, specifically a project called BubbleWrap, which I believe is also a Red Hat project because of course it is. Uh, So... BubbleWrap is a project that effectively makes it possible for containers to be used on non-admin users. Uh, traditionally, you would have to be like an administrator or a root user to make containers, which are sandboxed environments uh, within your, uh, your your Linux distro. Uh, BubbleWrap effectively lets you do this as a non-privileged user because you are trying to do things, only do things that the non-privileged user would be allowed to do anyway. Um, so that sandbox container spins up for any Flatpak app you start. And in that sandbox, there's only the runtime environment, the bundled dependencies, and your app, nothing else. And it functions very similarly to the iOS or Android uh, permission system, where if you want to get out of that sandbox, you have to accept the permissions that you grant the project. So this can have file system access. This can have network access. This can have blah, 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 blah. Uh, It actually reminds me a lot of entitlements on the Mac, which is funny because they sort of happened in parallel at exactly the same time. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I'm about to spoil the rest of the episode or part of the rest of the episode. How this did fly. Like, you compared it to entitlement with the Macs and even the sandbox on the Mac, and we do know that they're like... Like app developers that used to be on a platform that is 
I should say open, but that your app runs have access to the system functionality freely versus to running in the sandbox and being forced to run in a sandbox now is was not really well received. It actually turns out that like the advantages of this approach are so good that compared to what they had before, that people don't actually care. <laughs> oh, okay, that's good. That's good then. Because before it was a shit show. Uh, you basically couldn't really ship Linux binaries and expect them to run on any distribution other than the one you were targeting. Whereas this is, you target the sandbox, and that's it. The sandbox is like a self-contained Linux distro that is largely modeled off of Red Hat. Uh, that <laughs> just works and that is really what people wanted so the sandbox is a small price to pay in this case okay and you you don't have to be part of flatback you can still distribute your software the old way so you don't you aren't forced into the sandbox i see i see now of course you, you might be seeing where this is headed all of this depends on functionality that's provided by system d oh, okay now i was gonna say Yet again, another dependency by Red Hat, but uh, I guess System D is a dependency by well, Red Hat. That's also coming, but you, you jumped a step ahead. Okay, all of sorry. this is dependent on System D because the, all of the technology that is necessary for user space containers was developed as part of System D. Oh, no, no, no. That sounds so bad. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So because everyone is using the same runtime in a container, you have a predictable, consistent environment which your desktop app is targeting. So it doesn't matter that you're using an LTS version of a distribution, as long as it was released after System D became mainstream, which is 2012-2013. Then at that point, its dependencies just aren't being used anymore. Now you may not, you might actually be asking the question, like, what is the point of running an LTS distro if all of your software is running in a virtualized, up-to-date distro? And to be honest, that's sort of where I am too. <laughs> I guess I guess the sandbox kind of helps in terms of security. I don't know. It, it kind of smells fishy to me, um, but I was never one to really stick with uh, long-time support uh, distros anyway. Much like real Linux distributions, developers of these flatback apps are expected to keep up with the rolling releases of these preset containers uh so you're only ever really targeting one container version at a time so it shouldn't be a huge deal uh, it's much better than what developers had to do before uh with having to play whack-a-mole with all the different distributions so i think people are generally okay with this what's actually interesting is in august of 2020 uh, red hat enterprise linux introduced their own long-term support enterprise runtimes which is effectively like we took Red Hat Enterprise Linux and we built it into a flatpak container. And now you can use this if you pay us. Uh, so of if, if you just if you want us. the problem to go away, play, pay a subscription to Red Hat and your problem goes away. Um, I thought that was really funny, but like it doesn't seem to be a huge issue for the community. So I don't care. I guess it's okay. Um, right. And, and kind of goes back to my comment about Red Hat from... 10 years ago is at first they saw where they can make money, which is like literally we give you like, you can get the free software, but we have expert to support you supporting your, your servers and all that fun stuff because we're expert in this free software. But it seems that now they're like kind of slowly, but surely becoming Microsoft, you know, it's like we build custom software or we modify this free open source software to our liking and guess what? We are the only one that can support it. So pay us. I wouldn't go as far as to say that. Um, 
but it, it is a good point nonetheless. Um, so I, I sort of talked about the packaging format. I haven't really talked about how people distribute these. Uh, so app developers can build their own repositories on their websites, which are basically just folders with a given structure with files in them. So it's kind of like apt or any other package repo in that respect, except you're serving up binaries and containers. Uh, there's also uh, big community repos like flathub.org, which is one of the main ones where you can just, if you don't want to be bothered with making your own repository, you can just submit directly to that. And funnily enough, there is a package manager uh, app within GNOME called GNOME Software, which looks a lot like the Mac App Store that speaks directly to Flathub. Uh, and any other uh, Flatpak repositories that you add on your system. So it just looks like the Mac App Store. And I believe you can even, on certain of them, pay for uh, software if you want to. So it is basically the Mac App Store, except running on Linux, except people don't care about the sandbox there, uh, which is really nice. funny. Um, the other thing that this does is it trivializes the need for distribution-specific package managers. Uh, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. PackageKit was a free desktop.org project under the SystemD umbrella that offered distro-independent APIs to talk to package managers. And in 2014, basically, freedesktop.org, <laughs> Red Hat, uh, <laughs> decided that it would enter maintenance mode because Flatpak is the future of desktop app distribution. So overnight, Red Hat decided, oh, let's deprecate everyone's package manager for them without asking. And if you remember earlier when I said that the two distinctive elements of Linux distros is their package manager and their init systems, they effectively replace both. So before we talk about how this impacts people who aren't using SystemD, um, let's talk about like the good part of this story, which is Wayland and replacing the X window system, which is returning to what I said about that wake up call when they saw the original iPhone. How do we get Linux to the state where its UI responsiveness is competitive with the original iPhone? Wayland was born in 2008 as a part-time project by the uh, X window system maintainer Christian Koch. Cogsberg, uh, who worked at Red Hat. Of course he did. Uh, <laughs> and the goal, and this is a quote, every frame is perfect, by which I mean that applications will be able to control the rendering enough that we'll never see tearing, lag, redrawing, or flicker, which are all big issues on X Windows. Um, now, why did this happen on X Windows? Well, first of all, there's a, there's a really good uh, presentation this guy gave about how this came to be that basically goes through all of the objections people have uh, to Wayland and shoots them down one by one. Uh, so if you're interested in hearing more about Wayland, which we are not going to talk about much during this episode, uh, go watch that. But the core of the issue is that the world in which X windows existed in the eighties is very different from the one in which we live in today. So X windows was born like in the 1980s 1984 i think was the original release of x window system uh and at its core it was designed to be a protocol that could be used transparently over a network and unfortunately that directly informed the design and there were a lot of inefficiencies that came from that uh and in modern day usage this is a rare a very very rare use case but it's core to the protocol design and that leads to a lot of problems um, an X server can both render a window itself if you give it a description of what to render, or the app can choose to render itself 
send a bitmap of that to the X server, and you don't know which of these use cases is going to use. Uh, generally, it's going to be the latter because that X server sucks at rendering things well. Um, but that also means that you have to maintain support for both of these use cases, and it really sucks. So Wayland rethinks the protocol to be much, much simpler and more optimized for the common use case of desktop use. Uh, Wayland itself is a protocol that is spoken between the server, which is a compositor, and the client, which is your application. Uh, there is no one Wayland compositor, much like there is no one X server. There are numerous different implementations of Wayland compositors. Uh, there is a reference implementation, it's called Weston, but you don't have to use it. Application developers rarely interface with the Wayland protocol directly because all of the major widget toolkits have been updated to effectively have a swappable backend between X Windows and Wayland. And the way Wayland works is, unlike X Windows, it just says, hey, here's a buffer we both share access to. Draw your window into this. And then your app renders the UI into that buffer. And that's how simple it is. Nice. Um. X-Windows is significantly more complicated than that, and there are a ton of optimizations that could not happen because you had to assume that the network was maybe involved in some reason. Uh, and that really, really sucks. Um, the Wayland compositor handles more or less everything that would be handled by a window manager in X-Windows, which means that your traditional window manager doesn't really exist anymore uh, in a Wayland world. And... Uh, Unlike X-Windows, where every process can see every process's input events for some reason, which I did not know was the case, but that is good to know. Uh, doesn't sound very secure. Uh, Wayland sandboxes all of that uh, from process to process, so you only can see what happens in your own process, which seems smart. And of course, because this is only targeting desktop use, it uses direct rendering infrastructure, uh, which means that Basically, there's much less happening CPU side and more stuff is happening on the GPU, which was not the case with X. Um, and the cool thing is it's kind of backwards compatible. So you can run an X server that runs within Wayland. So you can have apps from one environment in the other, uh, which is nice. I don't have any bad news for this one. It kind of just exists and it's good. So it's good. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Now let's talk about what this did to non-Red Hat operating systems, I guess. So let's start with point number one. Obviously, you've probably noticed Red Hat is calling the shots on desktop Linux no matter what distribution you use. A lot of the work that's been done in the last decade by freedesktop.org through projects like Systemd has smoothed out a lot of inconsistencies across Linux distributions. Systemd makes it so that the core layers of the OS are the same. Flatpak is a distro-independent package manager with desktop facing so uh, for desktop facing software with consistent runtime environments. We did not talk about systemd homed, but this effectively makes your home directory a portable container that can be taken from distribution to distribution. We don't know if this is intentional or not, but Red Hat has trivialized the role of what it is to be a Linux distribution. It, it's probably intentional, but I cannot say that for sure. Especially if you are a heavy user of desktop environments, the technical underpinnings of a distribution don't matter anymore because they're consistent now. There is a very strong case to be made that if you're not using a Red Hat controlled distribution, you're getting a subpar desktop Linux experience. This goes back to what I've been saying like in each of these chapters. 
if you're not using X, you're getting a subpar experience. Like it now boils down to if you're not using Red Hat, you're kind of getting a subpar desktop Linux experience. And the reason for that is Red Hat has an advantage. They can plan feature milestones of all of these projects around their releases and other distributions can't because they aren't part of the process or they are, but they play a minority part of this process. And what this means is that Fedora is an extremely attractive workstation OS if you want to track the evolution of desktop Linux over time. That's sort of been the uh, conspiracy theory that we've seen thrown around uh, for the last decade. Red Hat has made it incredibly easy to switch Linux distros, and they are uniquely positioned in the industry to be the premier distro because they're directly responsible for everything that's happening. So this is kind of just true, even if your distribution supports system D, it's just like, this is the state of Linux world today. Point number two, non-Linux operating systems are unfortunately being negatively impacted by this. So freedesktop.org in itself is not supposed to be a Linux-specific organization. Its goal that is stated on their homepage is to provide a shared technology stack for graphical and desktop open source systems, period. Not on Linux. Open source systems. And there's multiple open source systems, too. Yes. Traditionally, the entire X-Windows stack, for example, has been accessible to most Unix-like operating systems. GNOME has been accessible to most Unix-like operating systems. You can install it on the Mac if you have X-Quartz, if you're real crazy. Much more of this stuff before systemd was interoperable between all of these Unix-like operating systems. What all of this increased reliance on systemd technologies across the stack is doing is absolutely problematic because systemd is Linux-specific. If you developed an application uh, as an app developer with GNOME libraries, because you were assuming that GNOME would continue to be available on all Unix-like OSs indefinitely, you're in for a fun surprise. Um, We are now reaching the state where BSD distributions have to do so much work to undo systemd dependencies or match systemd dependencies in, uh, in their packaged versions of GNOME that it's becoming unreasonable to maintain. And that is not good. I did say that there was no bad news about Wayland. What I did not say is that Wayland has more or less only been targeting Linux, and it's been eight years since development started on the BSD versions of Wayland, and there still isn't anything that's production ready, which really sucks if you're on BSD. You're stuck on an X-Window stack. Now, your X-Window stack on BSD has traditionally been much better than the one on Linux for various licensing-related reasons, but you're still stuck on the old stuff and a lot of people would really rather be using Wayland because a lot of the protocol level issues with uh, X-Windows remain true on BSD as well. And what we're realizing is that the Red Hat ring over freedesktop.org and GNOME is elevating desktop Linux at the cost of other host operating systems, which is not what people wanted. Okay, point number three. This is the, the, the one that people have been seeing coming Linux distributions that refuse to adopt systemd will become less than ideal for desktop use over time. I would actually say it's actually already less than ideal for desktop use, but we can argue about that. So certain Linux distributions are philosophically opposed to this notion of this giant scope creep monster uh, coming into their operating system, and they have chosen to stay away from it. Generally, these are expert-level distributions where the user is expected to have high levels of technical proficiency, or the distro is targeting server usage, where a lot of the benefits of systemd don't really matter because you 
don't care. Uh, you're not going to be using GNOME on your server, or at least I hope not. Um, so examples of these distributions that have dis- decided to stay behind on whatever init system they're using. Alpine Linux, Gen2, Slackware, SourceMage, and Void Linux. You may be surprised that Arch Linux is not in this list. Uh, Systemd became default on Arch in October of 2012. Uh, for all intents and purposes, Void Linux is kind of a spiritual successor to Arch Linux for people who don't like Systemd. Uh, so just note that. Also notable to not be on this list is that Android is not on the list of distributions uh, that support Systemd. It has its own stack that is completely divorced from everything freedesktop.org does, so it's not really relevant to them. So I'm going to go back to the uh, the Gen2 example from earlier. For seven years, Gen2 required you to swap your entire init system if you wanted to run GNOME as your desktop because they were using OpenRC instead of Systemd. They tried for that seven years to get OpenRC to... Uh, well, OpenRC, not OpenRC itself, but whatever login manager they were using to cooperate with the GNOME session management. And they were completely incapable to do it with what they were, uh, the hooks they were given to actually make it work. So they had to completely extract SystemD's LoginD into a self-contained module that they call eLoginD, and they replaced their old login manager with that. And they that's ultimately how they overcame that session management SystemD dependencies. There are other features in GNOME that... Uh, Gen2 doesn't have access to because they still do not want to use systemd. But at least they got session management working after seven years. Uh, of course, the other aspect of this is flatback also means that you are going to be cut off from an entire world of desktop software if your distro doesn't support systemd, <laughs> which also sucks. While all of this has been focusing on how this impacts GNOME users, unfortunately, it's not limited to GNOME. KDE wants to remain competitive with GNOME, and as such, they're slowly starting to adopt systemd features. Um, the saving grace of KDE, though, is that they have a quite significant user base that uses BSD. So they are committed, at least for now, to maintain non-systemd support as a priority, uh, which is great. I, I don't personally like KDE. I think it looks a little bit too clunky at places, although it is much better now than it used to be back in my day. Oh yeah, I recall us having a discussion about that. <laughs> Qt and KDE used to be atrociously ugly. Now it is much, much better, but it's still not quite to my liking. Um, but it, it is nice that they actually think, hey, other operating systems use us. Maybe we should continue to maintain support for them. Um, but the the asterisk in this is KDE team members actually admit that People are going to have to show up and write adequate alternatives to provide systemd-like functionality for other OSs. Otherwise, if nothing is there to provide the features that systemd is providing, other OSs are going to fall behind in terms of functionality, and that's unavoidable. And really, the state of things seems to be that the amount of shared foundation between Linux and other OSs will only decrease over time, which is probably not how people saw things going at the start of the decade. So now we get into the conclusion. I mean, I've made Red Hat to look like a bad guy a lot throughout this entire episode, but ultimately, when I look back at all of this, I'm kind of conflicted about what Red Hat has done to desktop Linux over the last decade. On one hand, I'm clearly all for making the desktop Linux experience better. And ultimately, they've succeeded, which is insane. Usually, you see these kinds of massive scope pre projects and they collapse and burn and everybody laughs at it. This is not really what happened. Um, the development resources that were put behind systemd are incredibly impressive and have greatly improved the consistency and reliability of desktop Linux, which is great. 
modern GNOME looks really good. It's user-friendly and it's more closely integrated into the core systems because now you can actually assume that the core systems are running system D and not a billion different kinds of software. <laughs> That's actually kind of nice. You can actually make network widgets that work instead of network widgets that need to be written by volunteers that integrate with various levels of the stack. Um, Flatpak has made Linux a more appealing platform for outside developers by simplifying distribution and target environments. Uh, there are games being distributed on Linux. Steam is on Linux. Uh, many closed source uh Big tech companies are making apps for Linux nowadays. Um, although part of that is also due to Electron, which is a whole other issue. <laughs> uh, Wayland is making the desktop experience more responsive and more fluid with a simpler protocol, a cleaner division of responsibilities, and less wasteful use of system resources. All this shit is great. I love it. It's great. Uh, if you're using Fedora, you have all of this. It's fantastic. But at what cost? Um modularity and freedom of choice is very highly valued in well the linux world but the open source and unix world in general and everything red hat has done has gone counter to that whether it be how all-encompassing the system d stack is or how it basically stripped all of the individuality out of linux distributions to the point that you wonder why there are other distributions other than the ones controlled by red hat anymore yeah to answer the uh, at what cost is literally vertical integration yeah and i mean like it's funny. I, I've read a lot of mailing list posts and uh, forum posts from 2012 and 2013 when this was just starting to happen. And there was, this is crazy. There was a post that was saying, well, as we all know, as experts of the open source world, this is something that only big companies like Apple and Microsoft would do, which as we know, they have never written any operating system that has ever been successful. So... Uh, what <laughs> yeah and i was like well um sorry but uh the mac Excuse os me? is more modular and less monolithic than literally what red hat has done here so uh shut the fuck up <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was just uh, like yes this sounds like a move that microsoft or uh, apple would do except they don't because they actually value their software quality more than they actually value this massive monolithic system um so yeah, I found that really funny. Uh, the other aspect of this is people really like to think of open source software and open source OSs as being community driven. Clearly, that is not what happened here. Red Hat's hold on FDO, uh, freedesktop.org, means that anyone with enough engineering resources can come in and basically dictate everything that happens on Linux uh, and maybe even push strategically beneficial agendas into all Linux distributions by taking over the core components of the OS, which is exactly what Red Hat did. Yeah, and for sure they have something that most people that could contribute to Linux don't have money, you know? Like they have resources and not, I wouldn't say infinite money, but they have a company's backing literally themselves to just push a shit ton of resources to contribute. Yeah, and like if you remove Red Hat from the Linux scene... Not much is going to happen. <laughs> you might actually see uh, development efforts more comparable to the BSD distributions, which unfortunately is not that big. That It's actually sort of impressive how much BSD gets done considering how small the scene is. Um, and that ties into the last point, which is 
all of this is simultaneously hurting all of the other non-Linux Unix-like operating systems in the world. And it's really hard for me to accept that because I think I gravitate more towards the values of BSD than I do towards the values of Linux. But if BSD stops being a viable desktop operating system because everything happening on the desktop side of things is Linux-focused, then maybe I'll have to use Linux as a desktop operating system. It, again, like I'm not switching off the Mac anytime soon. That's just theoretical. So ultimately, I'm left with the question, well, was it worth it? Like, what was the goal of this? Was it to get more desktop Linux adoption? Is anybody actually using Linux as their main OS today because of all of the changes that happened through this big improvement initiative? I'm not sure. Was anyone actually waiting for desktop Linux to improve before switching to it? I'm not sure. Apple actually probably did more to grow the desktop Linux user base by alienating their Mac users via App Store policies and releasing Lemon <laughs> laptops for half a decade. <laughs> oh my goodness. Is this really your conclusion on desktop Linux that Apple did it? Well, I didn't say Apple did it. I just said they probably it, did more to help desktop Linux. Yes, improve the situation, that's what I meant. Oh, wow. I mean, to improve the growth of desktop Linux. I, I think Red Hat still improved desktop Linux more than Apple did in terms of contributions. But like, Yes, yes. I know I took a small shortcut. Thank you for reminding me. But that's the story I was interested in telling with this episode is this literally all happened when I was not looking at anything happening in the Linux scene. And a couple months ago, I started looking more into it. And I was like, holy shit, what happened here? And then I did more and more research. And this is what I came up with. <laughs> wow. Um, you do mentioning a good point, right? It, you've haven't like, and even myself, like last time I've installed a Linux distro, I mean, even used Linux was doing CJEP. Um, with this all you catching up with what happened in the last 10 years, do you think you could switch? Because you did say like, no, I don't want to switch. I'm staying on the Mac. I particularly, I'm talking here, but what would make you switch? So when I had to buy a computer randomly in last July, when I realized that my laptop was bloating, um, I did actually consider buying a PC. And ultimately the thing, the like, it sucks, but it's Apple lock-in that actually kept me in because I want, at least for the near future, to actually be able to sync local devices with iTunes uh, that run iOS, which I cannot do elsewhere. I guess I could technically do it on Windows. And I want to be able to back up iPhoto's, uh, no, sorry, iCloud Photo Library to the cloud, a hard drive, literally anything. I just need something that can get that library pulled down and you can only do that on the mac right those are more or less my only reasons right now to stick with the mac i could switch to linux ultimately like the the thing is like as soon as these problems get solved in a way that they can be done on ios i don't really need a desktop computer anymore at all which right. is another problem um <laughs> if we shift though to my work computer that's where things get more interesting i think in particular uh, if less of our tech stack at work was Windows dependent, which it could be if we switch everything to the newer versions of .NET, which are platform independent, uh, not only do our servers no longer need to be Windows, which would be so good, so, so good. You have no idea how much issue these, these servers have caused <laughs> me in the past few months. Uh, so that would be cool. Um, but it, it would also mean that I would no longer need to be on Windows to do development. And 
then I might actually be considering switching to Fedora or something like that, because I think I would actually prefer the GNOME experience in Fedora to Windows 10. This is something that is a bit crazy to me. I know like in your day-to-day job, you're among there was no stacks. And yes, there's you could be a bit more usable, more than stack. But the fact that even Microsoft is kind of allowing their Windows developer, their Microsoft tech stack developers to be a bit more uh, platform independent. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that that could happen. You know, like I was talking recently with a friend that is in VFX, in video FX, and like he was telling me, like, you know, we're on Linux. And I was like, oh, really? I said, yeah, everything runs there. I was like, oh, interesting. I literally assumed you were on Windows. And uh, that's kind of why I was asking because I cannot imagine my day to day job move. I, I guess I couldn't. I'm kind of really open Xcode these days, but that's a different topic. <laughs> but for sure, on Apple mobile development, especially if you use native tools, uh, that might be a bit harder. If you do cross-platform development with Android, I think that could be possible. Uh, I haven't really looked into the tools on the Android side on whether they would run on Linux or not, or they will be more Windows-specific. But that is interesting that you could be considering moving your your desktop environment, not desktop, excuse me, your development environment to Linux by staying on more or less general web development tools. Yeah, and like as much as I love to shit on Node, uh, NPM is available basically anywhere. So it's like all of the tooling for modern web development can be pulled down. Not that we actually use any of it right now, um, but like if we wanted to actually adopt .NET Core and more modern JavaScript practices, like. I think we would have less trouble getting everything configured correctly on Linux than we would on Windows, even through the Windows uh, subsystem for Linux, which I have heard very mixed things about, honestly, and I am not too excited about the that. I would just rather use Linux altogether. Um, and I've even sort of on the side, on my free time, just looked at like, could we throw out these Windows servers and just build everything on OpenBSD instead? It would be so much less trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that, but uh, I'm not the one who makes the call for that. <laughs> but yeah, so I think for my work setup, I, I, I could switch to Linux easily. I could also switch to basically anything because web development, especially the kind of web development we're doing right now, all I need is a text editor, really, and I don't need anything fancy. Good. Is that it on our journey to uh, desktop Linux? Yes, it is. Good. So if you want to find the show notes regarding all the distros and all the technologies that Nick mentioned in today's episode, you can find the show notes at limitlesspossibility.net slash 153, so 153. If you want to go through our back catalog of episodes, you can find it at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find myself there too at Lukonosh. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you can find Yannick at Sakrina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.